This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, politics of the United States. This week, the ad man, Fred Davis of Strategic Perceptions Incorporated, joins the polyoptics conversation. Arguably the most creative and accomplished Republican in the ad game today, we'll talk about what's to come on the 2012 presidential campaign ad front. We'll hear some great war stories, find out when it comes to ads, what works, why it matters, and how beating Barack Obama the incumbent may just be easier than people think. Then Rosalind Jordan of Al Jazeera English joins us to take a hard look at how polyoptics American style is perceived around the world. I'm joined as always by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it's great to have you here. Adam, it's great to be with you. We're going into the Veterans Day weekend and uh, uh, it's a moment for pause and reflection, obviously. It's also a moment for me to catch up on my reading and listening. Uh, Just this week, the Nixon Library announced uh, release of 35 pages of transcripts of his grand jury testimony and a 45-minute session with the the good old Dictabelt in which he relates in in granular detail his 4.30 a.m. trip to the Lincoln Memorial to meet with war protesters, and I can't wait to dissect every minute of it, and we'll have a good talk about it next week. It is uh, one of those weeks where we've had another debate, and the politics is continuing to heat up, and of course the ramifications and the fallout of uh, that debate and what's going on with Herman Cain uh, are leading headlines. But we're also starting to pay a little bit more attention, Josh, to what is soon to come, which is uh, everyone getting uh, a wash in political advertising. That's right. You know, advertising when people actually pay for the airtime. And Adam, there's not been a lot of paying for airtime yet so far. We've been sort of m- moving along on what videos become viral or not. The Herman Cain, I Am America with Mark Block smoking on, on air has been the most influential ad of the season so far, and no one paid a dime to get out on air. But what happens when the great ad men make incredibly creative and ad women let me be clear, and Mandy Grunwald, that's a message to you, one of the greatest, uh, make incredibly creative ads, and the fundraising that creates millions of dollars to put these uh, targeted exactly to the voters start to get in front of these eyeballs. How is that really going to move the meter? Josh, I am really excited about uh, our lead guest this week. Fred Davis is one of the most acclaimed ad men in the United States of America. He practices his uh, talents on the Republican side of the fence, but he has had an impact in every race he's ever worked in, including uh, being named uh, five of the top 10 viral video ads in 2010 by Time Magazine. Uh, If you were paying attention, even in the least in the uh, 2008 campaign, you'll remember the biggest celebrity in the world ad by John McCain. He's the biggest celebrity in the world. But is he ready to lead? And you'll also remember from the 2010 campaigns, I Am Not a Witch with Christine O'Donnell. I'm not a witch. I'm nothing you've heard. I'm you. 
None of us are. The man behind those types of communications, the ads that have turned uh, the page, have cut through the clutter and brought people to a new narrative, a new discussion of a candidate or the issues, is Fred Davis. And I'm really excited to have you join us here on Polyoptics, Fred. Thanks uh, for having me. We have spoken many times in the past, and I even had a chance to work with you when I was serving as the production chief in the Bush White House. Um, I'm wondering right off the bat, where you are in the 2012 campaign, who are you working with, and what your thoughts are about uh, being involved uh, again in in a presidential campaign year? Well, I've been involved in in presidential politics since 1996, and it's a very interesting process because you have to pick your horse a long, long time before circumstance uh, plays its hand. So picture what happened to all the people, and I'm sure there were many of them, that Herman Cain tried to get interested in being his strategist or his media people, and they're thinking, Herman who? Um, nobody knows this guy. He's going to be my last choice of person to work with. And, you know, suddenly circumstance changes and he becomes a household name. Um, people that were behind Tim Pawlenty probably thought they'd picked a great horse. He'd been working towards the presidency for many years. He was an incredibly smart, great guy. He, um, he appealed to these times from a resume standpoint, if not an emotion and anger and an excitement standpoint. And yet, the horse they chose, that horse that they, they killed themselves for probably a year or two, some of them, to get prepared for the big race, after just a debate or two, he had to drop out. You, you can't plan those things ahead of time. It's happened to Donald Trump. It happened to not really Newt. Newt had a little flicker, and then his whole staff left, and now he's, he's showing new life. Um, Michelle Bachman was big and dropped. Rick Perry was on top of the polls, now on the bottom of the polls. So while Mitt Romney has sort of loped along at a nice average pace, uh, all these other players are coming and going. Now, mine, to answer your question... Yeah, who's your horse in this race? Mine, mine is a guy named John Huntsman. And John Huntsman, I started working on that ooh, a year and a half, a year ago at least, something like that, while he was ambassador to China. And it was a very unusual situation, which you and Josh would understand, having been in this game, in that I couldn't talk to him. I, I mean, I couldn't say a word to my candidate because he for sure he wasn't for sure he was going to be a candidate yet there's a piece of legislation that makes it a federal crime for anybody to talk to a federal employee who is considering running for president while they're on their job so when he got back from china roughly the end of last may he walked onto american soil and he had a full-time major presidential operation <laughs> already on the ground, and he really had no clue. And so he walked into that and was every bit as surprised as any, anyone else was and went through, a, I think, an internally difficult three-month period of time, two or three months, you know, making sure he wanted to run. This guy, if you look at his resume, it's the best resume in politics. Three-time ambassador. He was ambassador to Singapore at 32. He was the recent ambassador to arguably the most important country other than the United States on the globe right now, in China. He was a two-term successful governor of a very conservative state, Utah. However, running for president, 
and running for governor of Utah are dramatically different. Running for president and being appointed the ambassador to the trade ambassador or the ambassador to Singapore, the ambassador to China are dramatically different. And he's got an ad man like Fred Davis, and I don't think we've seen an ad yet. (laughs) Well, you haven't. Let me tell you, in that process, that two-month process, while he really couldn't tell donors whether he's going to run for sure or not, while he really felt, he's such a moral, decent guy, that he he had troubles asking you for a dollar if he wasn't sure in his heart that he was going to run. He thought he was the right guy. He thought he had the right skill package, but he didn't know if he wanted to drag himself and his family through this mess, and I, I don't blame him for that. But what happened was he got behind the eight ball on fundraising. So an ad man without money to run ads is a little bit useless. So at the end of July, I quietly left the campaign and help start a super PAC, which doesn't have spending limits, and but it's clearly focused on helping John Huntsman get elected. And I hope one of these days you will see some ads for, in, in, from a super PAC, but promoting the presidency of John Huntsman. Fred, uh, you as a creative person, uh, I think would a- approach projects large and small with an equal level of of uh, sort of looking at a blank page and figuring out how I tell a story differently. I mean, if you think about an architect like uh, uh, Charles Guamthi, for example, you know, he he and his firm design these beautiful office buildings and museums and things like that, but they also design a very small home that is equally a piece of art. And so if you think about your work for people like Ben Quayle or John Sullivan, how does your creative process unfold, whether it's for a congressman running for his first seat or person running for the White House? And what makes a Fred Davis a different creative technician in the political ad space than someone else? That's an incredibly good question. Many, 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 many years ago, I'm sort of a loyal guy. If, if people work with me and we get along great, I, I, for example, I moved from Tulsa to Hollywood in 1985. I still use the same travel agent <laughs> that I used since 1974 in Tulsa. She is still my travel agent for all of our company-wide travel. So I don't change horses. One of the great horses that I found early on in my life, in my career, was my director of photography. And he has shot, he's been in charge of the lighting, as you guys know, for every ad that I've ever done, which is roughly four or 500 a year, for many, 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 many decades. So when I first met him, he showed, I didn't know him, he showed up in my office in Tulsa. He had this little 8-millimeter projector, and he showed me, he said he wanted to show me some ads he'd shot. And he shot these ads for these little nothing retail stores in Tulsa, like a little lamp shop or something, and they were brilliant. I was expecting them to be terrible. And I said, you know, what was your budget on that? It couldn't have been $100. And he really, he's not a man that says much, and he very quietly said, well, you know, I always figured that if I approached every single project, regardless of the budget, like the entire world was going to see it, eventually the entire world would. And I've never forgotten that from my friend Jeff. 
and we approach every single ad, whether it's for Ben or John or you know any of our clients. Let me give you a specific example. The sometimes vilified, sometimes loved, but it did its job. Demon sheep viral video. In a land where sheep roam free, things are not what they appear. The land of demon sheep. A lot of people have seen that. I told somebody this morning that I will probably go to my grave being introduced now as the creator of the demon sheep, which is not exactly a perfect introduction, but I get it a lot. I didn't think five people would see that. This was for the Carly Fiorina Senate race in California last cycle, and all of a sudden, at the last minute, a candidate named Tom Campbell switched from the governor's race, where he didn't think he could beat Meg Whitman, to the Senate race, where he did think he could beat Carly Fiorina. And we had our budget, we had our entire campaign plan, we had nothing set aside for this guy at the last second, who has good name recognition in California, to switch over to our race. So we had to do something really fast, really cheap, that tried to convince the voters of California that, you know, this guy isn't exactly what he's telling you he is. He, you know, he's fairly moderate, and you're looking for a conservative. And so if I put together a little video that said just that, no one would ever have seen it. So we sit down as a group. There's about ten big shots around here, I like to call it. And we sit down as a group and said, okay, here's the goal. We want to show that he is not really what he says he is. And so somebody says, well, like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah, I like that. And it builds on that. And we laugh and we scratch things on whiteboards and papers and everything. Then I go away and I were write you looking, uh, Fred, were you looking at some of the taxidermy in your uh, house while you were thinking <laughs> that up? You've read too many newspaper articles. Yeah, well, I am a taxidermy nut. And um, so we shot this thing for nothing. And we put it on the air, and I didn't know if five people would see it or not. And it ended up with, you know, north of a million. So you never know. And we, if it's a radio ad, the tiniest radio ad, that still could be the most important thing in a campaign. So around here, I can't speak for anyone else, but around here, nothing goes out that I don't at least edit. And I write 99% of it myself. That doesn't mean it's good or bad, but it means you know you're going to get something that's Fred Davis-ish, meaning it's going to stand out. I hope the message is right, but you know it's going to stand out so you're not wasting your money putting it on the air. Well, I want to ask you about something that I found so Fred Davis-ish. Um, I was on a, at a business conference, checked into a hotel uh, last year in Scottsdale, Arizona, and getting dressed and have local news on, and I see this cinematic uh, ad coming on, and I don't know what it is because there are two figures off in the distance. And as the uh, voiceover gets a little closer, you recognize the voice of John McCain. Drug and human smuggling, home invasions, murder. We're outmanned of all the illegal. And in America, uh, as you pull in and you have a tight shot of him talking to a Border Patrol agent, he looks squarely at the agent and says, And complete the dang fence. Did that phrase, when it came out of McCain's mouth, on your dailies that you were shooting pop out and say, that's what's going to be on the air throughout Arizona for, from Fred Davis. That's another good question. Here, the rough background is, as I'm sure most of the listeners know, there's a horrific immigration problem in Arizona, maybe the toughest state, and it has gotten worse and worse and worse over the years. When John McCain first 
worked with Ted Kennedy to develop what some would call a fair and reasonable immigration policy for the country, it wasn't as bad as it is now. It wasn't good, but it wasn't as bad as it is now. So John was sort of tarred with that a little bit in Arizona. He had just run for president. He was running for re-election for the Senate. And I went down to this little border town, which I think is called Nogales, and I was sitting in a DEA trailer with a white piece of paper in front of me waiting for John's plane to land. And he walks in, and he had been with, that guy was a, was a sheriff, not a DEA agent. Paul Babo, I think, is a great guy. And they walked in, and I, literally the script was that white piece of paper <laughs> with nothing written on it. And we had to go film, you know, in 15 minutes. And I hadn't had a chance to talk with John on what was his thinking on why did he change his mind. And he, he walked in, I didn't even ask him the question, and he tells me that this situation has gotten so much worse. There's home invasions all the way up in Phoenix and Tucson and murders and all this kind of stuff. And he looked at me and he said, I guess we're going to have to build the, and it wasn't quite dang, <laughs> but it was a word that was very close, fence. And I wrote that down, changing it to danged on that piece of paper, and that became the guideline for that ad. So it wasn't me saying you need to come up with an excuse on why you've changed on this. It was John McCain actually seeing the situation was so much worse. He'd thought about it for a long, long time, and he finally came to the conclusion we don't have a choice but to build that stupid thing. And that's where that ad came from. Fred, uh, one of the things that I have learned from you and that I want our polyoptics audience to begin to appreciate, and we talk about polyoptics, political theater, uh, the visual communications elements. Yeah, it's a great term. Uh, thank you. Uh, and and uh, I will defer to Mr. King, uh, the, the, the who coined the, the term himself. But what I want people to understand is that for... Fred Davis, the ad man, the ad man, every time we talk about your process and every time it comes down to this, Fred Davis, a clean sheet of paper, and he's listening. You didn't come in to tell people what needs to be done. You always start by having a conversation or hearing the discourse that's going on in front of you, even if it's AIDS or the principles, and pulling out that nugget, that one thing that even once it gets twisted uh, in, 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 a, in a direction that's going to suit you visually, you take that and make it something special. And here we were. I always hear this from Fred Davis. Well, we only had 15 minutes to shoot. How do you consistently listen and get that kind of nugget of truth from people, whether it's Ben Quayle or uh, John McCain, or maybe hopefully it's John Huntsman and we'll see some of that. Uh, Talk a little bit more about how it is that you listen and find that. I mean, listen, Christine O'Donnell probably didn't want to say, I'm not a witch, but at the same time, it was required and you helped her see that. Boy, is that an interesting thought. I've never actually thought of it that way, Adam, but I think you're exactly right because another an argument against uh, hiring Fred Davis is often, well, he only gives you one choice. It's his way or the highway. And that's, that's a really bad spin on what really happens. I think it's more, I hope it's closer to what you described, 
We study it and listen and work on it so hard, and there's no two situations that are ever the same, so you'll never see two ads of ours for any two clients, even though we've been doing this 40 years, that are even close to one another or similar to one another. We listen so hard and work on it so hard that by the time I present something, I don't present it unless I feel 100% confident that that's the right way to go and that I can support it. And I'll fight to the death for that idea. We are not the Walmart of ad producers. We don't come in with five or six different, hey, how do you like this one? Oh, you don't like that one? What if we did this? We just don't do that. The Christine O'Donnell chat was very interesting on that particular ad. But a lot of these are because the number one thing we try to do here is attract attention. It's really hard to raise money for politics. Nobody likes doing it, and nobody likes giving those dollars. So if, a, if an ad that comes through strategic perception, my company can get 2 or $3 worth of value in eyeballs for every dollar that's actually spent on the media, we think that's a home run. We think that's really smart, and we spend just as much time on that effort as we do getting the message right. So... Ben Quayle, you you talked about uh, down there, he had a problem that came up. Um, and somebody you know, unearthed some kind of completely bogus story about something he'd done in the past. And we had, as usual, uh, a few hours to find some way to change the subject. Barack Obama is the worst president in history. And my generation will inherit a weakened country. And I did not write the words, Barack Obama is the worst president in history. I had that blank piece of paper in front of me sitting in his father Dan Quayle's breakfast room in Scottsdale and talking to Ben and not saying we have to change the subject, but saying, pal, you're going to have to do something that gets your point across about why you're putting up with all this hell you're dragging your family through to be in in Congress. What is it? And he looked at me, not thinking of it as an ad line, and he said, well, because Barack Obama is the worst president in history and somebody my age needs to get up there so that we have time to get this whole situation straightened out. And I said, that's it. That's it right there. And I wrote it down, and we wrote out an ad real quickly with a couple of his friends and cohorts that were sitting around, and we filmed it, and it was on the air that night. That, and it worked, by the way. He's a very successful and good congressman uh, in Arizona now. It's probably just because I've done it for 40 years, and I did it for 20 years in the corporate world, which is much, much harder than the political world, actually. The political world, it's difficult only because the time is so short, the dollars are so tight, and the stakes of every ad and every word in every ad are so high. I don't, I don't have an exact example right now, but I think you could sink an entire campaign, something people had worked on for a couple of years and donated millions of dollars to, if you use one wrong word in an ad. Um, we, had, we had a discussion around here this morning, actually, on one word of an ad that's going to come out soon, and we haven't decided yet whether to put that, that word in or not. The last line on that Ben Quayle ad was he stands up and he walks toward the camera and he said, it's time somebody gets to, goes to Washington and kicks the hell out of the place. Well, there was an argument over the word hell in it. And you know me, 
And you know, I will be on the side arguing for the word in the ad, because it's going to get more eyeballs on the ad. More people are going to talk about it. More people are going to talk about it at the water cooler. So in the polyoptic world, I'm probably the the top of the food chain, because I totally agree with the theater side. I totally agree with what you guys are all about. Fred, uh, you're in quite a minority uh, in the Hollywood Hills and the L.A. community in terms of uh, where you come down politically versus uh, uh, the people that are up and down Sunset Boulevard near your home. Uh, you, you You might have as neighbors people like Tom Selleck or Adam Sandler or Gary Sinise, but it's a small community of people who call themselves Republican or conservative, and yet it is such a cradle of creativity. When you live up there, is it advantageous to you as a creative and a uh, a designer of ads that is, uh, is attacking Washington to actually be out of Washington and in the midst of creativity, or is it a struggle to sort of deal with the ideology of the town? A mix of both. Um, I think it's one of the most important things in my business to not be in Washington. We have an office there, but I'm not in it very much. And I go there, and I love the people there, but there is a company town mentality. And it's easy to forget that you are in, when you're in Washington, you're in this tiny little microcosm, and the entire rest of the country is who's voting for those candidates that work in Washington. So does what happens in Washington, is that important for voters in Oklahoma to know when they're selecting a senator or a governor in California? It's not at all. And that's why so many, I think so many political ads look alike and sound alike. They're done at the same production companies, the same edit, edit studios. If you think about it, 80 or 90% of the voiceover voices are the same. The yellow flashing headline things. We don't do any of that. I mean, we go to enormous lengths out here to utilize the creative pool. We have vast numbers of great, incredible, unique voices. Just talk about voiceovers for a minute out here that other markets don't have. And these are people that probably came here as young kids hoping to be the next Tom Cruise. And maybe they didn't make that, or maybe they spent 20 years on a soap, but they know how to read a script and how to bring emotion. Well, bring Fred, da- Fred Davis, the, the loyalist, has favorites. I mean, you have created uh, your ads around one voice in particular, and they are one of the markers that say, hey, Fred Davis is involved. That, that's true. When I find somebody that I think is great, I will use them until it's too much. And I'm not sure which voice you're talking about, but if I'm guessing right, this year it seemed like it was too much to uh, use that voice a lot, at least in the presidential world. So uh, Brian Dennehy did the voice on that motorcycle film for yeah. John Huntsman. And, but you don't have, any, when you're in Tulsa, where I was, and that's where I worked for 20 years, you don't have the ability to go, gosh, let's use Brian Dennehy. It doesn't come to mind because you don't see him down the street. You don't have lunch with his agent. You don't do those things that I get to do because I'm physically here. The flip side of that is my home is actually in Santa Barbara, and I have a, a long driveway. Every morning I'd put a new W. You know, Bush yard sign in front of my yard, and then I'd drive to work. And every night when I came home, every single night it was gone. And I'm talking about for months. And I really wanted to put a little 
staple a note to it because you just knew it was the same person every day taking it. I wanted to put a note and say, you don't get it. I work for the campaign. I have an unlimited supply of these. You cannot <laughs> take all the yard signs in America. <laughs> but I, And so when I did McCain this last cycle, I spent really more time at the office in Hollywood than I did at home. So I didn't – but I chose – specifically not to put a yard sign in front of my office. I would never have put either of their bumper stickers on my car because the mentality around here is if I went to a movie 99% of the time, I think I'd come out and someone would have keyed the paint. People get very, very angry about politics. Mark Halpern, you mentioned a minute ago, I was on a panel that he did a couple days after Obama beat McCain. And it was here in Beverly Hills, a bunch of actors. And Mark personally asked me to do it months earlier. I, I, <laughs> I should have said no, but I got booed just when he introduced me. And then we go through this whole panel discussion, and when it was over, I think this story was in the Newsweek, or Time story you're talking about. Um, a bunch, I got surrounded for a couple hours by these people. And uh, Jason Alexander is an extremely nice guy. And he came up to me, waited his turn in line, uh, walked up and real nicely said, Fred, I just had one question I didn't want to ask you in front of everybody else, uh, but how do you sleep at night? And I think that tells you that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm in a, kind of a stranger in a strange land out here, but it works very well, I think, for our end product. You're listening to Polyoptics here on POTUS, Series XM Channel 124. Fred Davis is our guest, a Republican ad man based in California, product seen around the country and quite literally around the world. Some of the most uh, successful viral videos uh, known to mankind in, in, in the political realm. Uh, I want to know, as we think about 2012. What do you see about what's going on in this 2012 campaign, especially in the Republican field with Herman Cain and the uh, accusations of sexual harassment and the fumbles by Governor Perry? Are these the kinds of things that might become fodder for an ad uh, by Fred Davis? Or are you really wanting to, to keep it to defining your candidates, creating a vehicle for their messages? Well, you kind of have to do both. But in, I, if I had my choice, I would never have to run a contrast ad. I, we seldom run what, I, what most people call pure negative ads, because I don't think people like them. I don't like doing them. But all you're doing when you're working in, in politics is you're giving people information to help them make a decision. So if you're trying to decide between a Ford and a Chevy, I think the Ford dealer is going to tell you that on that F-150, his frame is made with thicker steel or something. And if you go over to the Chevy guy, he's going to say, well, you know, maybe their frames were, you know, thicker steel, but we use unibody construction, so you don't need that, so it saves weight. It's a normal process in life. When you go to pick milk at a grocery store, there's usually not just one choice. You have sizes, you have fat-free, you have all these various things, and something on that package somewhere probably extols the virtue of, it says, pick me, you know, choose me. I'm better than that guy next to me. And that's the same thing in politics. So it doesn't matter what race you're in, 
even if you do an incredibly wonderful opening positive ad and look at the Rick Perry things, you know, I was born in a paint can or whatever it was in Texas and all these things and my father did this and my mother you know, worked in the library and all these beautiful things. The reason those words were chosen is only because the other people might not have had that. I would say that uh, Mitt Romney was probably raised with a silver spoon. There's no way he can say that. So that is a contrast ad, like it or not, even if it comes off, even if it's in the wool, the sheep's wool, of a very warm and fuzzy positive ad. You're making a contrast between that guy and this guy. In Mitt's case, it's no surprise that the big uh, hit on him is lack of moral compass, that maybe he flip-flops a bit and has on you know several points. People are You're going to hear people saying, I'm consistently this. I don't blow with the wind. I don't do that. Even if they don't you know, mention Mitt, it's an understood contrast ad. So those are going to happen as long as there's politics. And I don't think it's bad. Where it's bad is if you lie or mislead the public on a, on a particular fact, which we try very, very hard not to do. Or if you tell the truth, but you do it in a um, over-the-top heinous way that kind of misleads even though the facts are right and we don't like to do that either i have been sitting here and i want to say this for everybody listening to polyoptics uh smiling for the last half hour we've had this conversation it's always uh, and i mean this so sincerely a privilege to spend time talking to you and to hear uh your insights and the process and, and what you do we will be watching as we go from here to election day just one year away fred davis you are Polyoptics, and we thank you for being on the program. Thank you both. I appreciate it anytime. Josh, as so often happens here at Polyoptics, we have the opportunity to bring in colleagues and friends, people with whom we've worked over the years. This is no exception to that. Rosalind Jordan is a woman with whom I really started my career uh, as a journalist. Uh, she was with me on the weekends at WFXT, Fox 25 in Boston. And uh, our careers have sort of come together and, 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 and we've worked together a few times. It's really wonderful to have you here on Polyoptics, Roz. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for not telling the world when we worked together at Fox 25. But many of the people with whom we worked at that time are still running the show. That's right. Bo- that's right. Boston uh, Television, as Josh can attest, is uh, usually, uh, and this is no exception again, uh, peopled by folks who, who have a great stake in the community and really had no aspiration to move on or up. Really, they are living their lives in their community and doing this great job. You, on well, the other hand, which well, is... I think what really anchors them to WFXT is that amazing sub shop right in Needham, <laughs> right near WFXT. I forget, what's the name of it? Oh gosh! There's one. Well, there, there, there was, there was a the one subway. in Needham was the one called. Uh, oh, that's over near CVB. Yeah, it is near WCV, which is the ABC affiliate in Boston. And, mm-hmm. and I can just tell you, they had subs the size of your head, Josh. Yeah. They were enormous, and I'm forgetting the name of that place. Well, with the uh, near yeah, Fox must- 25, you had both Fridays and you had the Primo Dunkin' Donuts, and I could never start a work day 
without going through the drive-through and getting the strongest coffee. Well, we're they digressing had. already, but I can tell you, <laughs> I, I fell in love with Dunkin' Donuts in Massachusetts, and you really can't uh, you can't throw a stone anywhere in that town without hitting one. No. But, uh, but what I want people to know here on Polyoptics is that Rosalind Jordan uh, came to Washington. She joined me at Tribune Broadcasting, where we worked for some time, and then she moved on to the big big leagues, and she was at NBC News covering the White House for a long time. Today, she is a journalist with Al Jazeera English. Yes. This is the uh, English language version of this Middle Eastern Arab Street news organization. And really, I want to take a second today, and Josh and I have been wanting to do this for some time, to think about polyoptics and how the theater of American politics, the imaging, the messaging, is actually translating and being perceived overseas. And this is very important because uh, for those of you who don't get Al Jazeera English on your local cable systems, well, first, please call your cable systems. Uh, But two, if you watch us online, because we do stream online, one of the things you'll see is that in my current role, I cover the State Department and the Pentagon. And what I am doing is trying to explain U.S. policy to those who are going to be living downstream from American policy. And it's very, very interesting to see how people react to all of the drama that happens here in Washington between you know, one party that might think we should do X and another party that thinks we should do Y. And it's not necessarily a debate that falls along what we consider partisan lines, Republican, Democrat. You have very different philosophies in terms of how the U.S. should be going to war. You have very different philosophies in how the U.S. should be conducting its diplomacy. Certainly with the current economic strife that the U.S. has been suffering really since 2008, it really does become a factor in how the U.S. is able to exert its influence in other countries, whether it's across the Middle East and North Africa, with, you know, which is experiencing the Arab Spring, or whether it's in other parts of the world, such as Southeast Asia, where you see a lot of political transition, perhaps most notably now in Burma or Myanmar. How does U.S. views of these countries and how the U.S. should be engaging with these countries, how do the people at the other end respond to it? And how do they respond to the very political discussions that get into figuring out policy? Roz, given that um, that you need to consider sort of how your your remote audiences are taking U.S. news, how does someone in your position react to news that broke uh, overnight in this morning's papers that Dennis Ross was leaving uh, the NSC after his most recent tour from uh, the White House and the State Department, but such a long-time presence uh, in negotiations between U.S. presidents and Middle East leaders, and uh, sort of the the notion that Barack Obama came in, as so many presidents do, whether it's George W. Bush and Bill Clinton, uh, going back to Jimmy Carter uh, and even back beyond that, with the best of intentions about crafting uh, Middle East peace, and then some t- sometime during their terms, they sort of... Uh, uh, lose their initial uh, uh, momentum toward that. George Mitchell leaves, and now Dennis Ross leaves. What's the message through Al Jazeera's airwaves about where the U.S. is going right now in terms of being an, an honest broker in Middle East negotiations? Well, I think what really 
comes out of the departure of Dennis Ross, which if you believe his statement and if you believe the statements coming from the White House was really a year overdue and coming. He had apparently only promised his wife two years of government service this time around, and instead he is pretty much leaving at the end of three years. It's a very long time in U.S. diplomacy, given that it really is a 24-hour business. It is perhaps an admission that not just the pro-Israel camp within the Obama administration, and many people viewed Dennis Ross as being pro-Israel to the point of perhaps not giving the Palestinians a fair shake. It's a view that perhaps that side has exerted about all of the influence it can exert. But on the flip side, when you consider the departure earlier in the year of Senator Mitchell, who was the Mideast envoy, who was trying to resurrect the peace process, which, is, of course, as our listeners know, fell apart very quickly after the Ballyhood summit of uh, September 2010. It's also a realization that just doing the long, hard work and trying to give the Palestinians more of a sense that they are an equal partner at the table also hasn't worked. And I think what our job is at Al Jazeera English is to try to show people who are going to be looking to the U.S. to play this role of honest broker, to try to explain that, look, policies that are born basically in a conference room somewhere end up running up against domestic politics, both in Ramallah and in Jerusalem. And certainly the Obama policy ran into problems in both cities. You also have the fact that we have our own political calendar, which is really ramping up here. And one of the tenets of a sitting president who wants to be reelected is, don't stick your neck out at this time. Don't give the, re- the voters any reason to not vote for you. Given that President Obama came into office in 2009 and said he wanted to restart a peace process, which many had said the Bush administration had essentially ignored, given that he took such a tough position with Prime Minister Netanyahu, one which not only upset many of Netanyahu's political supporters in Israel, but also upset a lot of pro-Israel Republicans and Democrats in this country, it's almost, you almost have to look back and say, in 2009, we should have seen this coming, that it was going to be a very, very difficult thing to manage, especially given that at some point in 2011, all innovations in policy essentially were going to have to come to a stop anyway because of this election. You know, I love the fact that you brought up uh, which I think is a really important, uh, maybe not fully appreciated around the country, certainly within certain pockets, the polyoptics of that meeting mm-hmm. in the Oval Office between Bibi Netanyahu and the mm-hmm. President of the United States on the heels of this sort of unilateral uh, assertion that Israel must go back to the 67 borders. And here you have Netanyahu in the Oval Office saying, not going to happen. That you so could bl- feel the you could feel the freezing temperatures. You could, but talk to us a second about how that 
how did that play? How did that translate? What what was the impact on the rest of the world, especially yeah. your community yeah, yeah. that you report yeah. to? It was very much a crisis, very much a crisis. How could a man who came in with so much promise, who had such international roots, his father from East Africa, his having lived in Indonesia for a good chunk of his childhood, this very peripatetic you know, upbringing, very globally minded mother. How could someone with that sort of experience and implied sensitivity to the way that other cultures look at their politics and their security interests, how could Barack Obama get it so wrong? So wait, are you telling me that the Arab street perceived this as, it wasn't just, wow, that's great, that's what we want, or this is good for us, it's, wow, he really stepped in it, this is not good for the detente, the discussion has now gone askew because the president has not gotten his antenna up and he's not feeling it. Well, he, 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 he stuck his neck out, but when... The, when it really came down to can President Obama deliver, the view is the president blinked. And that has hurt the Obama administration in some of its other initiatives, particularly in its efforts to figure out how to recalibrate its overall Mideast diplomatic strategy. People here in this country have accused the administration of not really having a focus the administration will argue we have to deal on a country-by-country basis. But when you start listening to people who live in these countries that are undergoing political upheaval, they do raise the question, are you, tr- you, know, are you trusting us enough and are you going to stand by our brothers and sisters who live in Gaza, who live in the West Bank? How much can we trust you, seeing as how you can't make any headway with the Israelis? Josh and I uh, were both production chiefs in the White House. Uh, and Josh has, has traveled the world and he's been involved in, in, in multilateral summits, uh, G20, G8. But one of them that happens every year, Josh, is APEC. And the president is leaving to go uh, to Asia uh, this week. What do you think about what Rosalind said and, and, and how important is it uh, for Americans to understand that when he goes, and, and this this year we're hosting it, it's Correct. in it's in Hawaii. So I don't want people to think, well, he's he, he is going to go on to Indonesia. He is going to make a trip uh, beyond that to Australia. I think. Yes. Uh, yep. But but Josh, help us understand it and, and and sort of serve it up for for Roz, because those trips are really about foreign media consumption, aren't they? Mm-hmm. That's right. I mean, if you think of the first APEC, uh, it was during the Clinton administration. We were in Seattle, uh, Washington. Did you have and to now wear we... those? Did they have to wear those funny jackets for the well, class no, photo? Well, no. The first time it was sort of go in your own casual attire. So Clinton had an A2 bomber jacket, and I think the uh, uh, the uh, Prime Minister of Japan had a beautiful wool sweater. I mean, everyone wore their own thing. And then we went to this place in Indonesia called Bogor Palace where everyone wore their their uh, patterned shirts and that was the first time APEC was sort of always consigned to the goofy picture category <laughs> and it's been that way ever since. We have Josh uh, King to thank for that. But but um, uh, APEC uh, as opposed to the G7 and now the G20, but a- APEC brought the U.S. president so much more into the, uh, obviously the Asian 
Asian Pacific cultures and made uh, America much more of a citizen of the Pacific than it had ever been. And this is a, a wonderful dichotomy of, uh, of pictures that are that is going to happen over the next few days. You know that he's going to fly first to the USS Carl Vinson for the mm-hmm. uh, for the tee off classic of the college basketball season between I think uh, Michigan and North Carolina I think he's not going to land in his own S2 uh, Viking Adam Uh, (laughs) then he's going to go on to Honolulu for the for the Apex Summit and again it's going to happen on a Saturday and there is going to be this class photo that will be so ho-hum in uh, in in U.S. uh, coverage but for all these Asian Pacific countries, these smaller countries that have, don't get the exposure to uh, the U.S. president that often, especially when they go to U.S. territory in Honolulu, it's going to be a big deal in these territories, right, Ross? It's going to be an extremely huge deal. I did the trip with President Obama last November, in fact, when he did his South Asia, East Asia tour, and we spent three days in India. There was nothing else on television except, here's the president, here's the first lady. Oh, wait, did you see that other video clip of the first lady dancing with the students? You know, it's this real sense of the president as the embodiment of everything American. And it was, to growing up in a country where everyone expects to be able to criticize the president, it was really overwhelming to witness this the sense of here is this man, the symbol of the United States of America. He is here to listen to the hopes and the dreams and the ambitions and the wants of one billion people. And we saw that when we were in Japan. We saw it in Seoul. There was a lot of gnashing of teeth in Jakarta because we were only on the ground for 14 hours. There was that little uh, situation with the volcano. People get when you don't stay overnight. When you don't stay overnight, but the volcano was threatening to ground both Air Force One and the backup Air Force One, which was going to take the First Lady back to the U.S. So we had to leave. And lots of things that you know heralded the president's childhood had to be scrapped. But more important than all of you know that that imagery, and I know that we're talking about imagery, was the sense that when the president comes to your country, everything that is a problem in your country, whether it's the flooding in Bangkok that has displaced some two million people whether it is the ongoing efforts to re-stimulate the Japanese economy and could perhaps Japan be used as a counterbalance to a surging Chinese economy, whether it's the question of class distinctions in India. Yeah, it's, you know, to have the person there, you feel as if you're actually getting a hearing. And I think the person, the president... Being that symbol carries so much weight when he actually shows up in another country. And so there will be a lot of coverage on not just Al Jazeera English, but on many other television channels because people will feel as if we're getting an audience. We're going to be heard. From the pomp and circumstance, uh, Roz, of the presidential motorcade going through the streets of Mumbai to a different kind of imagery. And I'm curious about how viewers of Al Jazeera uh, take this and how uh, how the network itself deals with it, which is, if you think of the last year, I mean, we've seen 
images of Saddam Hussein uh, post-mortem after mm-hmm. his hanging. We've seen uh, Muammar Gaddafi in the streets of Libya. Uh, we've seen Hosni Mubarak in a hospital bed being mm-hmm. uh, tried or arraigned for his uh, for his crimes. We've also seen Neda Sultan on the streets of, of Tehran. Uh, how does Al Jazeera deal with the images that for a U.S. audience are so shocking and so galvanizing. Uh, does it work the same way overseas? It does, except that, and I will say just having seen the video of Muammar Gaddafi as he was dying, and then seeing the video of him lying on that mattress in that meat locker, and people lined up to view his body the way that people lined up to see the body of Pope John Paul II in St. Peter's in 2005. To have that playing out late morning, East Coast time, while I'm at work, was shocking because Americans do think twice while our children watching, our old people watching. We're much more sensitive to the emotional reaction. And because, especially in television, we know that people will find a phone number or these days find our Facebook page or find our website, find an email address and start screaming at us. How could you do that to us? In the rest of the world, and I think it's fair to say in Canada, in Mexico, farther into the Southern Hemisphere, certainly on the other side of the globe. There's a much more honest, a blunter acceptance of birth, of death, of violence. And it is something that our viewers overseas are accustomed to. I don't know that I could go as far as to say that they're desensitized to it, but they certainly do notice that when they watch an American newscast, things are cleaned up. You don't see, you know, that moment, you know, of Gaddafi breathing his last, as we showed from a cell phone video, you know, at 1030 in the morning, Eastern time. You don't get that on American television without a lot of discussion, a lot of managers discussing, a lot of newsroom staffers arguing the point back and forth, and then finally, a newsroom division chief makes the call, yes, we can do it this way, no, we can't do it that way. Now, that is not to say that in the case of Gaddafi, that once we had shown the video, because there was, from a purely journalistic standpoint, we had it, it was an exclusive, Then we started sharing the video with other networks. Then our newsroom chief came down and said, okay, we've established that we got the video. We've established for people who needed to know that he in fact has died. We've established that fact. Okay, do not use this, and this is a media term, let's not use it as wallpaper. Let's think before we just put it on the air. So, but you know, I think that was, Because this newsroom chief had worked in the States, he understood that there needed to be a balance, particularly as more people in this hemisphere started tuning in. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I wish I could talk about this for hours, and I'm sorry that we've run out of time. But, you know, Rosalind Jordan uh, of Al Jazeera English, uh, Harvard-educated, 
Columbia University uh, for a graduate degree in journalism, a woman who's worked at the local level, at the highest national levels as a journalist, and a woman who represents the press corps in the State Department and the Defense Department uh, every single day. Uh, We really appreciate you giving us a little bit more insight into what it is to take your reporting skills and understand how it's being perceived around the world. Thank you for joining us on Polyoptics. It was my honor to be on Polyoptics with you and Josh, and I hope we can do it again. I look forward to it. There's so much to talk about. Fred Davis, the incomparable Republican ad man, followed up by Rosalind Jordan of Al Jazeera English, Uh, a show for Polyoptics aficionados everywhere, I think, Josh. We really span the globe from what's happening right in the dub suites and edit suites of of admin to what happens when when video goes viral around the world and it's of incredible consequence. Every week here on POTUS, Politics of the United States, you will find Josh King and myself, Adam Belmar, here on Polyoptics. We hope you'll check us out online at uh, polyoptics.com. And of course, you can find us on Facebook slash polyoptics. Until next time, I'm Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us here on POTUS. POTUS.